Would you please give a warm welcome to our family pastor and friend, Terry McGarry. Good morning, Westwinds. You know, one of the coolest things about working here is that I get to worship with my friends. It's just fun, it's good. Uh, good worship, aren't they great? Mm -hmm. So, the first time that I ever left this continent, Rick and I were headed to the Middle East. And the work that we were doing there was not exactly welcome, so we were kind of tense. It was a stressful situation. So when the summer was over and we left the Middle East, we decided we would stop in France so that I could meet Rick's family. And we were kind of breathing easy, you know, it was France. It's a first world country, it's gonna be fine there, nothing to worry about. We were relaxing, letting down our guard. And we arrived by train, and Rick trudged off to go find which train to take next, and I sat there with the nine suitcases, waiting for him to come back. And I'll never travel with nine suitcases again. <laughs> and I waited, and waited, and waited about two hours. And then I thought, my God, he's lost. He, he, went, he went to get directions and now he's lost. He does this all the time. He's really good at getting lost. And I thought, okay, first rule, if you lose somebody, just stay where you're at. He'll find you. A Couple more hours later, some guys dressed really nice with little train conductor hats on came and motioned for me to follow them. So I did. They were the gendarmes. I was later to learn that that word means police officer. They weren't train conductors. Rick was under arrest. They let me talk to him for about 30 seconds, long enough to learn that he had dual citizenship. He didn't know. He was a French citizen. And as it turns out, he was also a wanted man. He had evaded the obligatory draft. Strange things can happen in a strange land. And our story today opens up in a strange land. The powerful imperialist Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, he rules the world. It's modern day Iraq. But we aren't in the beautiful hanging gardens of Babylon and we're not in the international trade center in the marketplace. Nope, our story opens up in a settlement camp along a little irrigation ditch off the Euphrates River, where Ezekiel has been forcibly removed from his land, from Jerusalem. And somewhere in Ezekiel's memory is that night that the Babylonian guards came and took him away. And we don't know who was there, maybe his mom and dad, maybe his brothers and sisters. We do know that he was married and that his wife went with him into exile. So you have to understand a little bit about Israel to understand why is Nebuchadnezzar even messing around with it. Israel is a tiny little country. I was just there in January, and I stood up on a mountain, and when I looked to my east, I could see the Dead Sea, the eastern border. When I looked to the west, I could see the Mediterranean, the western border. It's a skinny little strip of land, but it's very fertile. 
There's lots of places to grow things, lots of running water coming down from out of the mountains. If you don't stay in that little strip of land, if you try to come out of Africa and go west, or east, I'm sorry. If you come out of Africa and you go east, you, it looks like you could just make a hard right, but you can't. You're gonna have to go over mountain passes and through a long, long sandbox where nobody would make the journey alive. So you have to go up through Jerusalem in order to go anywhere else in the world, anywhere else. It's a very strategic city, which is why Nebuchadnezzar wanted to control it so that he could rule the world. And he just wanted Jerusalem to calm down. So he would take the key players out of the city, and that's what Ezekiel was. He'd take key leaders, and he'd replace them with his own people so that you could still have the value of the city, but it would be under Babylonian control. And every time that they got a little restless, he would go and do this again. And God's people were known for being restless. I don't know if you know this, but they have a history of that. We're kind of an unruly bunch, you know? Miscreants and misfits, rabble-rousers and rebels. I know you guys are unruly, I know, because I usually work down at that end of the building where there's plenty of chaos and messes and tears and band-aids, and that's just the volunteers. <laughs> but really, <laughs> really we got great people down there. Melissa Fleming is um, the head of refugee services for the United Nations, and she collects stories of refugees from all over the world trying to understand their plight. And she says, some of them may never go home to live there again. They were forced to flee. It is one of the worst things that can happen to you. It's not just, it's not just your land, it's everything you treasure. It's the community, it's friends, it's the atmosphere, it's the type of food, it's the memories. It's all been forcibly left behind. And then she goes on to say, I have never met a refugee who didn't want to go home. So I think it's fair to say that this is how Ezekiel and his friends are. They're living in a traumatized community and they just want to go home. Refugees will often report that the thing that's hardest for them is missing their families. They sometimes don't know where they're at. Um, it's, it's the biggest struggle for them. They don't know where their mom, their dad, their brothers or their sisters are at. And I wonder about Ezekiel. You know, did he dream about his family? Did he just want to see their faces again. You know that feeling when you miss somebody so much, you just really want to see their face? My mom used to come darn near every day to have coffee with me or my sister or my other sister, and we gathered together to chat at the end of her work day. She took her coffee really, really seriously. This is something we have in common. And um, one morning she woke up, 49 years old, walked across the parking lot to get some fresh coffee at the little store down the way. And on her way home, she dropped dead of a heart attack. And in that parking lot, when they found her, there was her little cup of coffee sitting there beside her. And that was hard for my sisters and I. We were young moms. We missed her. And we would say to each other, you know, I can hear her voice, but I can't see her face anymore. Do you, is that happening to you? Like you can't see their face anymore? And we would just want to have a dream about her. 
So every time if we dreamed about her, we called each other up. I had a dream about mom last night. You know, we'd have to give all the details. And it was like we got to see her again, just in our dreams. And I wonder if that's how Ezekiel felt. Jerusalem was his beloved city with its lively marketplace and its sweet pools and its beautiful temple. It was the place where he spent all of his holidays. It was like Frankenmuth on steroids. And he was headed for his dream job. He was going to be the priest, or a priest, I should say. And his family is there. So this exile for him is very, very personal. And the affection that he felt for the city of Jerusalem seriously cannot be underestimated. For the Jews, Jerusalem was the city of God's promise. It was the place where the glory of God had come to the temple, hovered over it like in the days of the pillar of cloud or pillar of fire. God's glory came over the temple at the Holy of Holies and he promised to rest right there. You could literally point to the place and say that's where God is at, right there. But in Babylon, in that godless city, where is he? If you were here the last couple of weeks, you would have heard Dave talk about Ezekiel's first visions. And in that first one, God comes riding in on this incredible chariot. It's like living rainbows and sparks and flames of fire. It's an incredible scene. But God is there with Ezekiel, and the vision just lays him flat out, and he can't even get up for days. God showed up in Babylon. Surely now, surely now, since God has shown up to Ezekiel, he's going to roll up his sleeves, and he's going to start to wrestle with Babylon. He's going to rescue them from their oppressors and send them home. It is no doubt Ezekiel's fondest dream. It's the kind of dream you actually dream about. So God has shown up for Ezekiel and he stands him up and he empowers him to speak to the people on his behalf. And in Ezekiel 4, he says, now, son of man, Take a block of clay, put it in front of you, and draw the city of Jerusalem on it. So Ezekiel does. He takes the stylus and the block of clay and he starts to sketch the city out from his memory. He can see it in his mind. He remembers where his mother baked bread in the neighborhood ovens. He remembers his family home and his neighbors. He remembers where he cooled off in the city pools with his brothers, and then later when he got older, he would bathe there before he went to the temple. He remembers the place where he met his wife and the home where they would have gotten engaged. He remembers the marketplace where maybe they went and bought their first linens. Don't you have memories like that? All the places where you built your life all the choices you made and the relationships you formed that make you who you are now. And then God says to Ezekiel, now lay siege to it. Erect siege works against it. Build a ramp up to it. Set up camps against it. Put battering rams around it and take an iron plan and place it as an iron wall between you and it. How Ezekiel's heart 
must have broken to hear this prophecy. How hard it must have been for him to be the herald of such bad news. How hard to lay his body down in front of that map of doom. But God also has a map of the city by memory. He's got a life of your map by memory too. He knows all of the significant places that are burnt into your mind. The parking lot where your mother died, your first kiss, the place where your baby was born, the time you walked across that graduation stage, that time you walked out the door. He knows all the places where you are weak and he knows all the places where you are strong because he is intimately involved with you and he knows how to make you stronger. He also has seen every nook and cranny of Ezekiel's beloved places, but his vision is sharp. Like that eagle on that chariot that he rode in, he can see. And the city has a dark side, and the dream has become a nightmare. He sees the home of the widow, neglected by her community. He tells Ezekiel that he sees the orphan, maybe hanging out by the bread ovens, trying to get something to eat. He sees the elite pool where the rich and the powerful are scheming up violence for their city. He sees the marketplace where the foreigner is charged an exorbitant interest rate that they cannot recover from. He sees Ezekiel's brothers, his own brothers, planning a Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme to make money off of the city's despair. And he sees Ezekiel's neighbors, everyone putting their wife aside, choosing another, and you don't even want to know what he sees there. In God, he cannot unsee that. See, God's people, they were getting good at getting bad. They had been living double lives. It was kind of like a specialty for them. They were divided. They had been caught with their pants down for 390 years. The entire history of the city was a series of unguarded moments. They made a habit of blowing God off. And God is about to get their attention. And he's going to use Ezekiel to do it. Because Ezekiel is a prophet who will not only show, but he will tell. Or tell, I'm sorry, the other way around. <laughs> he has a flair for street performance. He's a little like Eminem. He's an artist with a fury and drama, a guy who will put it all out there, and a guy who knows he needs, God knows he needs someone like this in order to get their attention. Because God is about to step in and alter the course of their history. And this is why God tells Ezekiel to lay down 390 days. One day, he says, for every year since I promised to be present in my temple until now when I'm going to alter the nation's destiny. Isn't it weird that God tells him to lay down for 390 days? Like, don't worry too much for him. We don't really think it was a 24-7 gig. I think it was something he woke up and went to the busy parts of the city and did. It was how he would show and then tell. Put the map in front of you, Ezekiel. Lie down in front of it for 390 days. 
then lie on your other side for 40 days. One day for every year that your people will go into exile. You're not going home, Ezekiel. Your family, your brothers, your neighbors back home, they're coming to you. And they're coming in chains. 40 years in exile. That is an entire generation living in another land. An entire generation removed from the city of God. An entire people taken from their homeland. It, it is a generational time out. See, the people of God, they got it wrong. They imagined that since they had God's promises, God's word, God's temple, God's very presence, that they were on God's side. They got their agenda mixed up with God's agenda. And they aren't just playing by their own rule book. They're like trying to coach God in the game. They think that they're invincible. Time out, Israel. Time out, foul play. Have you ever felt like God was putting you in a timeout? Like he was hitting pause on all of your dreams? God will sometimes change your circumstances in order to change your heart. See, God is present. He sees his people. And he sees the perversion of his plan for them. They were meant to be the light of the world, and they were meant to be the dream of the world. But God sees not only them. He tells Ezekiel throughout his visions that he also sees the poor, the widow, the oppressed, and the mistreated foreigner. He sees them too. Light of flame, Ezekiel. Take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and spelt, put them in a storage jar and use them to make bread for yourself. You're to eat it during the 390 days that you lie on your side. This is food that only the poorest people eat. This is food scraped from the bottom of the barrel. This is food rationed out by a city under siege, unable to get to their farm animals, unable to get to their wheat fields, even unable to get to their firewood. It's food cooked over excrement. This is the prophecy that God tells Ezekiel to share every day in the streets. Cook it and eat it. Do you know that they sell Ezekiel bread in stores? You can find it in the health food section. You wanna talk about taking God's word completely out of context? Like who would want to eat that? It is ration food. It's ration food. Barley is the kind of grain you grow when the soil is too salty for wheat. It's the food of the poor people. You know, there's a story about some rabbis in 300 AD. They wanted to recreate Ezekiel's bread. Props to them for the scientific method, right? 
Um, so they did. They recreated the recipe and cooked it the way that Ezekiel was told to cook it, and they couldn't get the dogs to eat it. Okay? <laughs> if you want to recreate that experiment with me, I'm totally game, because I think sometimes you can get some happy accidents when you're cooking and it doesn't go well. This is like also ground beans, right? Ground coarse beans. This is early falafel. I, I love falafel. But let's understand what it means and what's going on here. It's rationed, cheap food. It's like the ramen noodles of 600 BC. When my son Jacob went away to college, his aunt gave him a book called 100 Ways to Cook with Ramen Noodles. <laughs> I was really glad that he told me the other day he doesn't still have that book. <laughs> but she got that for him because she really had a grasp on his financial situation. The city of Jerusalem is about to go on a ramen noodle diet, and there's a run on Dollar General. They will eat rationed food in anxiety and drink rationed water in despair. This is bad, God says. This is very bad. How bad? Bad enough that God asked Ezekiel to cook it over human excrement. The kind of siege where you'll reuse anything. It reminds me of my mother-in-law. She saves every single twist tie she has ever owned because she might need to use it again. And she says to me, if I give her any grief about her hoarding tendencies, she just says, you would never make it in the war. <laughs> and probably not. <laughs> and that's, that's what living through World War II will do to you. That's what living through a siege will do to you. And do you know Ezekiel was repulsed by the idea of cooking this food over human crap? I mean, in all fairness, that was the point. He was supposed to be repulsed. But you know that he said to God, please God, no, don't make me do that. You know I am a priest. You know that I have obeyed all of the dietary regulations. And do you know that God relented and said, okay, swap out cow dung. Use the cow excrement instead. And I love that part of the story because it tells us that like, God will work with you. <laughs> he won't obliterate your personality. And I guess that God might have overestimated Ezekiel's flair for street drama. So back to the people of Jerusalem. They are about to lose everything. Their home, their friends, their family connections, their country, their religious practices, and their dignity. And God was about to let it happen so that they could regain their purpose. God was going to change their circumstances in order to change their hearts. See, God is stepping into the city. There we go. He's stepping into the city walking down its streets and through its back alleys. And in this story, at this time, God, what is his role in this story? He's the bad guy. You ever feel like that? You ever feel like God is the bad guy? Breaking up all of your dreams? Do You ever feel like God is the cause of all of your failed efforts? He's the reason you didn't win last week's Powerball? He's the reason that guy never called you back? He's the reason you didn't make captain of the football team? 
you better hope that he's the bad guy. Because sometimes our capacity to dream destructive schemes can only be stopped by a force greater than ourselves. See, God cannot design a world to suit all of my stupid ideas. He is really not at my beck and call. He just doesn't have any desire to create a universe where his people can self-destruct socially, politically, economically, culturally, and relationally, and he does nothing about it. He will interfere with your circumstances if that's what it takes. He's always been in the business of calling people back to himself. So are you living in an exile? Have you lost your home or your job, your family, maybe your dignity? Maybe it's an exile of your own making and those are the worst. Maybe it's an exile imposed on you by somebody that you loved. Maybe it's a famine of bad circumstances that you cannot control, but one thing you know, it's been going on for a long time and you don't know if you can hold on. Don't reach for the quick fix. That's what the people of Jerusalem did. When they lost their attention on God, then they lost their affection for God. And then they began to run after their own fixes and their own ideas about what would make them happy. Sad? Papa Vicodin. Broke? Go borrow some more money. Isolated? You know he's only calling because he's drunk and alone. When you're stressed, you will reach for any kind of fix, and it won't work. It's like that old grandpa leaning over his grandson who's fixing the lawnmower with some duct tape. And he says, Son, if you ain't got time to fix it right, you sure ain't got time to fix it again. <laughs> Stress will tell you, fix it now, God. Fix it now. Faith will tell you, fix it well. When things feel senseless and hopeless, it's time to wait. God's not done making you better. He has a better plan for you than to eat crap and die. God will change your circumstances in order to change your heart. See, that's been his plan all along, heart change. I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. Sometimes it takes a broken dream to make better dreams. When we cooperate with the Spirit of God, he makes us better. You got a dream home? He has a plan for you to open it up. You got a dream job? He has a plan to expand your influence. You got a dream relationship? He has a plan to teach you how to love better. If you let him, God will change your heart and he will teach you how to love what he loves. I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. Do you know what it looks like 
when we learn to love what God loves? It looks like Melanie Hole, who gives up the best of her summer days to go down to Dearborn to teach Arab American women who are immigrants how to speak English so that they can begin a better life. It looks like Sid and Amy Gafkin, who open up their home and their hearts so that they can foster children in the city of Jackson. It looks like Dustin Burdick, who after he struggled with his battle of addiction, he now struggles to get perfect grades so that he can be the best psychotherapist that he can be for other people struggling with substance abuse disorders. It looks like Rene Guerrero, I practiced that name a thousand times. Guerrero, Guerrero, okay. Looks like Renee. She left her job, her highly paid job as a school teacher, <laughs> to take a lower paying job, taking care of teenage refugee boys who are just trying to figure out life, helping them to understand how to get an apartment how to apply for jobs, how to achieve their educational goals. But what she says is mostly, I just love them. I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. God will focus you. He will focus your purpose and focus your affections. Sometimes it takes a shattered heart to grow a stronger heart. When Rick was finally sprung out of jail, courtesy of the U.S. Embassy and the governor of Michigan, he was faced with a choice. Having learned that he actually had dual citizenship, he had to choose his country. He could not remain a divided citizen. Well, he had to report for duty if he was going to do that. He had to renounce his French citizenship. He had to keep his focus on one country. It's kind of like that with God. He wants our undivided affections. He wants our whole heart. I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. And if you let God, he will change your circumstances in order to change your heart. Will you pray with me? Father, help us, help us to yield to you. Really, God, if you hold all the locks, then we will give you the key. Help our hearts to not lose their focus on you. and Help our affections to be undivided so that we can hear your spirit and grow in love. Amen.